Hello, I'm Faz Ahmed, Head of Global Transaction Services at Bank of America, and you're listening to the Treasury Insights Podcast. With me today is Paul D'Onofrio, Vice Chair at Bank of America, who oversees the company's commitments to achieve net zero and deploy $1.5 trillion in sustainable finance. Also with us is Haim Israel, Head of Global Thematic Investing Research, B of A Global Research. Today, we will explore ESG trends and the role of Treasury in pursuing sustainable practices for long-term growth. Welcome, Paul and Haim. Thanks, Paz, and it's great to be here with you and with Haim. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks, gentlemen. Okay, so clearly top of mind for so many people, a focus on environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, has delivered a financial impact to many companies. There are many drivers of the ESG agenda, depending on the location of an organization in the value chain. With that in mind, Paul, when looking at the environmental focus of ESG, net zero is top of mind for many clients. Could you talk about the significance and challenges of net zero for a company like Bank of America and how it impacts our global business strategy? I want to start with the why. The why we're so committed to achieving net zero at Bank of America. As a global bank, we know we have to be able to deliver for our customers and our employees and for communities, not only in the good times, but also in the worst of times, especially times of economic stress. So to ensure that we can always deliver no matter what, we've been running our company for over 10 years now with a complete focus on something that we call responsible growth. And a core tenet of responsible growth is to ensure that everything we do is sustainable. And sustainability influences all elements of our business, from the sustainability of a new product and its revenue to the sustainability of our suppliers. But the most important driver of sustainability and responsible growth is the health and growth of the markets in which we operate. It's not the only reason, but it's probably the most compelling reason Bank of America is so committed to helping societies and communities solve some of their biggest challenges. We want and need societies to continue to grow and grow consistently over the short and long term. And few challenges are more fundamental to continued world growth than addressing climate change and a thoughtful transition to more sustainable energy. That's why we are doing it. But what have we done so far? In our own operations, we've been working to reduce emissions and improve sustainability for more than a decade. As a result, today, we're carbon neutral. But we've also committed, before 2050, to achieve net zero in our financing activities and supply chain, which is otherwise known as scope three emissions. And we've set interim 2030 targets to reduce emissions in line with the best science. Now, as a global bank, and you alluded to this, Fez, a key role we play is to finance and support the transition of our customers to net zero, which is why we have also set a goal to mobilize 1.5 trillion by 2030 to advance the UN Sustainable Development Goals, with 1 trillion of that focused on the environment. So we've committed to helping the world get to net zero, and it's a big challenge. So just think about all the jobs, all the economic activity, all the innovation, and all the growth globally, not to mention all the transaction banking, that will surround an investment of $275 trillion. So we've got to get to net zero for our children, but it is also our best opportunity to drive prosperity and worldwide responsible growth and a lot of transaction banking. 
Thanks, Paul. Impressive to think about the scope of the opportunity, both in terms of a positive societal impact, as well as the fundamental economic activity that can take place to achieve net zero. Lime, let's turn to you. What are some of the key macro ESG trends impacting different industry sectors? Sure, of course. When we talk about different industries, we need to split the conversation between three things. We need to look at the big picture, what that means, first of all, for the market, what that means for what happened with ESG up until now. We need to look from the macro picture and on the micro, on the company level. So from the big picture point of view, first and foremost, we need to see how the recent market volatility have impacted ESG in order us to go to the different sectors. Number one question we face again, now that market volatility is so high and inflation is rising and choppy markets, whether ESG means less. And our answer is very simple. 40% of global fund flows year to date still went to ESG fund, almost $60 billion from a total net fund flow of $153 billion year to date. Also, same thing from the beginning of the year to August, ESG fund flow saw an inflow each and every month. Did it really matter where the market was? Choppy market, red markets, green market, didn't matter. Every month we saw an inflow of money into ESG funds. And today, one out of eight funds globally is an ESG fund. This number in 2020 was one out of 12. So the number of ESG funds are definitely increasing all the time. On the micro level, on the company-specific company level, it still works. ESG still works. It works on the financials, it works on the valuation, and it works on the performance. Looking at the S&P 500, good ESG companies are trading at a 40% premium to bad ones. The second point we see on a company level, more companies are taking the stand. As Paul was mentioning, how important is looking at the S&P 500, one third of companies have a net zero target right now, which is three times more than 2020 levels. So more and more companies have a net zero target and this number is increasing by the day. Over 90% of companies in the S&P 500 now publish corporate social responsibility reports. That number was only 11% back a decade ago. So you definitely see that no numbers are up nine times. More overwhelming, looking globally, not just as the S&P 500, but almost 4,000 companies, as Paul mentioned, have combined market cap of $26 trillion, have now pledged to support Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. So definitely, that's heading that way. Now, when we look at the market level and on the company level, now let's talk about the macro level. We need to understand one very simple thing. ESG is changing, changing a lot. ESG is not a concept or not an asset lot which is sitting in its isolated ivory tower. It has to be connected to the current events on the plant right now. The war in Ukraine, inflation, resources scarcity, all making investors look very differently on ESG. I'll give you a couple of examples. No, defense, energy, some of them were big no-nos to ESG funds a year ago, but right now, do we have a choice? This defense should be viewed very differently today on ESG terms. LNG, we will need to power ourselves. We need to cut ourselves from Russian oil and gas. So no, some of those sectors are actually now being accepted and viewed from ESG funds. We need supply of energy, as I said. Some might be higher emission for the short term, but no, they have social implications. So we have to start factoring all this stuff to our ESG models. As I said, the world is not the same world it was a year ago. In one year, 
We had war, we had inflation bursting, we had markets which are very choppy, we have resources scarcity, we have bottlenecks, deglobalization, everything happened in one year. ESG has to accommodate itself. So as I said, a couple of sectors which you know, have changed dramatically in terms of the approach of ESG. We need social implications about powering the world, energy transition, energy independence, all that are key issues which are now being scored into ESG. Same thing about materials. We have seen that some of those materials, which we do know the demanding and the process of it is high on emission, has to be taken into consideration again, because the scarcity of those materials, lithium and so on, has long-term implications on net zero. We all want electric cars. Electric cars are part of the solution, but we just don't have enough lithium in the world. And mining more lithium and getting access to more lithium, at least on the short term, is coming with an emission ticket. Defense is another great example that we have to take into consideration. Some of those companies, as I said, were a big no-no in the past, now has to be taken into consideration again. We're talking about defense on a much more broader scale. If it's aerospace, we have seen nanosatellites, communication, and what that means from a social perspective and from a geopolitical perspective. We have seen about cybersecurity investments and so on, which has also ESG implications on the positive side. My message over here is that the world is changing. ESG is changing with it. Market is focusing even more on ESG now than it has in the past, and it pays up. Thanks, Hyman. Paul, you alluded to some aggressive ESG objectives earlier to reach net zero before 2050 and the $1.5 trillion in sustainable finance that is being put toward a more sustainable future. Could you share more about Bank of America's plan to achieve these goals and how other companies and industries should be thinking about their own transition plans? Why don't we start with you, and then we'll ask Haim if he has anything to add. I guess the question is, how do we as a bank get after this opportunity, this goal, and ultimately achieve net zero? What does every other bank and perhaps company need to do? Well, first, as I said earlier, at Bank of America, we're already carbon neutral in our own operations. We achieved that in 2019, a year ahead of schedule. But to be scope three net zero is a much bigger challenge. To be scope three net zero, our financed emissions need to be net zero. And while it may be an oversimplification, that means one of two things. Either we stop lending to all our customers or all our customers get to net zero. Now we're in the business of helping our customers achieve their financial goals, including making loans to them. Nobody's gonna be happy if we stop doing that. The only real solution for us and for our customers is for everyone to develop and execute credible plans to get to net zero. We have something like 28 projects underway to build the capabilities we think we will need to help us and our clients do this. Basically, we're embedding climate into everything that we do. It's true that it's being embedded into everything we do. We see it in all of our processes, in our committees, and our product approvals here at the bank, especially in transaction services and other parts of the global banking organization. So just wanted to emphasize how seriously we're taking the process of embedding climate, as you mentioned. It is a process. It's not going to happen all at once. And it'll take years to create all these capabilities, but it's the things we will need to do in order to achieve net zero. And it's the thing that a lot of banks are going to need to do and many companies are going to need to do. Thanks, Paul. Haim, do you have anything to add to that? I really want to echo what Paul has said, and I cannot agree with you more. So when we interact with companies and we're looking at capital markets, there are three things that I really want to highlight over here. First of all, you have to have a target. The second one is that you need to be transparent about those targets, track them, have means and measure to track them all the time and measure them. 
The third point, as Paul have mentioned, you need to filter these values, those targets, this strategy to inside the organization. No, it will never fly unless the organization is fully committed and aligned to all those targets. So to have a target, we need to get there. As I said, roughly 90% of the S&P 500 right now has a net zero target. And give or take the same number has a DNI target. Same thing. So as we keep saying, better to be bad company and say it rather than be a good company and just not say it. Market will always reward you. So 90% of the S&P 500 has that. That's a huge progress. Numbers have been shorting up dramatically, but no, we still need to get the rest of the 10%. However, as important is that companies that were very aggressive in the beginning on all the targets, we see them either pushed away or been very, very quiet on the process. It's quite interesting. Now, did you know that actually the average net zero targets rate of the S&P 500 has moved by more than six years in the last almost four years? Only 10% right now are on schedule. Now, that's okay. We need to understand organizations are living organisms. The environment has changed. Things are changing all the time. And it's okay to move targets around as long as you have a plan and it's very well articulated as you have the transparency and communicate to the market and still very much committed to that. As I said, if we had this conversation a year ago, there was no war in Ukraine, no scarcity of resources, inflation was constrained, and cost of capital were very different from where they are right now. Organizations are living organism. It's okay to move targets as long as you stick by them. What we've seen is that companies became very, very quiet or just not following or not giving periodical information about that. That's viewed quite negatively in the market. More important is the transparency. Now, half of the S&P 500 companies that pledge to net zero do not disclose scope-free targets. Now, Paul mentioned how important scope-free is. Although, actually, interesting enough, scope-free is three times larger than scope one and two combined. You need to have full targets. We have 90% of the S&P 500 companies have targets, but not full targets or not transparent targets. And that's extremely important. Paul mentioned how important the transparency is to that one and give the whole value chain information and actually working with all of the different shareholders and stakeholders in order to work through those targets. Lastly, I have to mention that the organization needs to believe and act about all these values. Our survey found out that if that making your employee believe in company that is really acting, for example, on DNI, I'm deliberately not talking about net zero, but on diversity and inclusion, for example, it is key for the workforce performance and efficiency. Thanks, Jaime, for that insightful answer. We're running out of time, but I'd like to ask a few more questions and perhaps, Paul, more of a personal interest question. How are you seeing ESG change your family's perspective of their daily lives? Does it impact what they buy or where they shop or consume services? And the reason I ask from a transaction services or GTS perspective, we have a merchant acquiring arm. We clearly cover a substantial number of the country's largest manufacturers as well as retailers. And these are the types of questions we often get asked as well is how is it changing people's behavior? So I'd love to hear your perspective of this. In our own family, my kids and our whole family, we just are reusing stuff a lot more. We never throw out a plastic water bottle. It gets used over and over again. If it's not being reused, we focus on recycling it through the pickup of our waste and what we're not using. I would say the other thing 
that I've noticed amongst my kids is that they volunteer a lot more than I did growing up. I've got one daughter who's helping to replace the oyster bed in New York Harbor on weekends. And they certainly care about the social element of ESG by supporting their friends who are diverse across both race and gender. We are in the process of putting solar panels on our roof, on our home. We came to that decision in part through a lot of encouragement from my two girls. So it's affecting how we live every day. That's really interesting. Haim, how about yourself? Well, I have four Gen Z's at home, and I have to say that the change in the Israeli household has really start from our kids. Now, this goes very well with all of our surveys and all the work that we've done on Gen Z. Gen Z are the leaders, the crusaders of ESG. It's interesting because they don't like the phrase ESG. It's very Wall street and we do know that Gen Z have their own way about looking at the financial markets, but they were living in a world of values of ESG. We've seen that from a more personal point of view, Recycling, they were the ones that were very adamant about that. We have meatless Mondays. Did not come from me, it came from my kids. The reason was less of a health issue, more of an environmental issue. We all know that meat is consuming a lot of water. Actually, today, if you eat a steak of one kilogram steak, it's the equivalent of using 16,000 liters of water, three and a half months of showers. Recycling, same thing. We do not use disposables anymore at my house at all. We do not use straws. This is key because we've seen that in many households as well, that the revolution is starting from our kids. The movement against plastic straw, it all started from a video on YouTube with a turtle that got tangled in a plastic straw. That's how it started. So I always say that you no know, Gen Z is the leader and will definitely going to lead the way for us. I'm seeing that personally. I have to say that I'm quite envy on Gen Z, the younger generation, because they will live in a world that we're not going to have to ask ourselves those questions. Thanks, Haim. I look forward with interest to Gen C and Gen Z's stewardship of the economy when they are old enough to take those responsibilities upon themselves. Paul and Haim, there are many more questions I would like to ask. This is all that time allows us today. Hopefully we can do this again in the future. So once again, Paul and Haim, thank you for your insights. Well, thanks for having me, Fez. It was great to be here. And Haim, it's great to be on a call with you. Great to be here. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everybody. I'm Fez Ahmed, Head of Global Transaction Services at Bank of America, and my co-hosts today were Paul D'Onofrio, Vice Chair at Bank of America, and Haim Israel, Head of Global Thematic Investing Research, BVA Global Research. Thank you for listening to our Treasury Insights podcast series. Take care. Bank of America and B of A Securities are the marketing names used by the Global Banking and Global Markets Divisions of Bank of America Corporation. Lending, other commercial banking activities, and trading in certain financial instruments are performed globally by banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including Bank of America, N.A., member FDIC. Trading in securities and financial instruments and strategic advisory and other investment banking activities are performed globally by investment banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation investment banking affiliates, including in the United States, B of A Securities, Inc., and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp., both of which are registered broker-dealers and members of SIPC and in other jurisdictions by locally registered entities. B of A Securities, Inc., and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp. are registered as futures commission merchants with the CFTC and are members of the NFA. Investment products offered by investment banking affiliates are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. 
Copyright 2022 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved. All trademarks, service marks, and trade names referenced in this material are the property of and licensed by their respective owners.